0: Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon, and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. Uh, Because the reality is the the pace that we're going at tonight, we are only covering one verse. (laughs) We're so used to Acts, covering chapters at a time, maybe even several chapters at a time. Acts let us do that. James will not let us do that. Uh, and tonight is no, uh, no small example of that. So we're only going to read chapter 1, verse 1. That's all, all we're going to do tonight. Read with me the word of God. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. I hope to allay some fear. I'm not going to refer to James as Jacob for this entire study. I was like, that's so confusing. Just call him James. You can mention the Jacob drop. That's fine. That's that's cool. But you don't have to keep using it. It's just confusing. Anyway, James himself. But there may not be a more polarizing book in our Bible than the book of James. And if you didn't think that this book was too polarizing that might indicate the kind of side that you're on the polar opposite side that you are on there are lots of strong feelings about james good and bad and the reality is i experienced that the last three weeks with you all i heard of nothing it was almost like you guys hated walking through acts now you didn't and i know that you didn't you loved it but I heard so much, "Oh, I can't wait to get to James." I'm like, "What's wrong with Luke? Luke's the man. James is great, but Luke is awesome as well." It was it just showed me and it proved to me like James is is very polarizing. You love him or you hate him. And he said, "Really? People hate James?" Yes. One of my personal her- heroes of the faith had a very hard time wrestling with the book of James. Martin Luther, the 15th century reformer, 16th century reformer, had a very difficult time embracing James as a book of the canon. In fact, he called it an epistle of straw. He said it was worthless. He said it had no place in the Bible. Now, he would eventually go a little bit softer as time wore on, He did realize it was a canonical book, that it fit into the biblical canon, and he did recognize it as authoritative, and he did, best of all, he did actually listen to it at points, which is good for Luther. You know, knowing Luther, that was a very hard thing for him to do, to listen to anybody. Uh, But Luther eventually did settle down and retract some of the things related to James. But Luther was arguing really from the stance of Paul. Uh, Paul, of course went very hard in the book of Galatians and in the book of Romans on the matter of justification. And when James gets around to saying things like, ah, you think it's just justification by faith alone. I will show you my justification with my works. Ha <laughs> ha! Luther had no time for it. And of course, there is a strong warning that we can see in the words of Luther. Of course, James is in our Bible and James is authoritative And we don't have time to necessarily unpack that reality, but it is true. And so we do have to give our hearts and our thoughts to all of God's word, even if it's not something we can theologically make sense of. Maybe that's a good, strong warning for our theological systems. Sometimes the word of God does not fit very neatly into our theological boxes. And guess what? We still have to listen. And it's okay. I'm not quite sure God has a particular theological box anyway. That's a side note. But the reality is James is very deeply gospel-saturated. We will discover just how deeply gospel-saturated and centered James is. But the reality and the warning that we can have in relation to maybe a skeptical view of James is that we need to be able to hear commands and pastoral instruction through the lens of the gospel. We need to be able to hear pastoral commands and admonition through the gospel. In fact, that's one of the best ways, the only way we can truly hear these commands as encouragements, which I think, uh, again, even the the video presented this this, uh, book as a punch in the gut. I understand what they're saying, but I actually see if you can't find the sweetness of the gospel in James, you're doing it all wrong. This shouldn't be a punch in the gut as much as it is a, yes, Jesus, I will joyfully follow you, which we will get to in just a bit. But if there is much hate for James, and I use that word loosely, there's also, as we know in this room, much love for the book of James. A lot of us love the practicality. Ah, something for me to do. It just gives me what I need right at this very moment. It makes Uh, no um, uh, question marks in my mind. It just says, get busy. And you know, I'm a do-it-myself kind of person. I'm a check-it-off-the-list kind of person. And man, I just love it when James gives me something to do. And certainly there are many things for us to be doing from the book of James. But maybe there is a warning here for the love of James crowd. Beware of divorcing the do from the done. Beware of seeing the practicality without seeing the theology that underpins it. The overwhelming message of modern Christianity continues to put the Christian at the center of the Christian life, and James is not interested in doing any of that. In fact, what we begin to see is that actually the kind of pure religion we are after keeps Christ at the very center and then our neighbor next in line as as people we are serving. In other words, James still has a hunger for us to simply consider the the gospel of Jesus Christ in him only. As hard as that is to hear related to James, too. Beware of divorcing James's due from the reality of his brother's done. In other words, maybe I can sum up the relationship or the polarization this way we must find Christ in the straw. We need a pure religion, not just a religion that gets us by, but one that is pure, one that relates to the holiness of God, but also demonstrates the kind of mercy and grace that in the gospel we have been given freely. Or as James would say, we must be a hearer and a doer. We must be a faither and a worker. We must be a dunner and a doer. In these ways, we actually embrace all of the realities of Jesus himself. Jesus did not merely have particular emphases that we might see in James or particular emphases that we might see in Paul that kind of situate themselves uh, in ways that relate to theological emphasis. If you know if you know what I'm speaking of, again, going to Galatians, it's easy to see why Paul was contending for justification by faith alone. And it's easy to see why in James, James is actually arguing for works that accompany true faith. These are situationally uh, positioned, but we have to understand that the Gospel kind of overshadows or umbrellas all sorts of contexts. and we must have the Gospel in all of its manifestations. Uh, as a clear target for what we are shooting at. Which is why then he would write, James would write to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And we know from Paul and even in some parts James, yes, this was written to particularly, uh, particularly Messianic Jewish Christians, We know that to be true, but also there's this little bit of theological shift that the new Israel was kind of coming forth at this very moment. The Christian church was coming to to light at the very moment that James happens to write this. And so he writes to the 12 tribes, and yes, that is Messianic Jews specifically, but also this can be read, as the video said, very broadly in terms of all Christians everywhere in the world. And so here we sit listening to James's words, bending in and hearing what James would have to say. But to understand the tone and emphasis of James's writing, we must realize that his pastoral context is unique. James wrote in an environment that was neither fully divorced from Judaism nor fully theologically developed as Christians. Let me kind of say that again, that can, that can be hard to hear. James wrote in an environment that was neither fully divorced from, practica- uh, from the practice of Judaism, nor yet was the church fully theologically developed as Christian in every nuance. And so we have to understand that really this is not an either-or situation. This is kind of a both-and situation. So this is why you hear James talk about the freedom of the law. You'll hear him speak in Jewish ways often because certainly he's writing to to Jews as well. But also it's ingrained in him and it's part of his pastoral work to not throw the baby out with the bathwater, to read the room in in Christian history and be able to understand and embrace the realities of Jesus' death and resurrection, but also walk his people through the religious practices that they have been accustomed to. And certainly, again, this gets fleshed out big time in Paul. Paul would have a lot to say uh, to, the, to the Jewish church, especially when the Gentiles came on board. Uh, the, the Gentiles had a way of uh, really um, uh, messing things up, if you will, with, with the Jewish church. And that was good. It was helpful. It needed to happen. It was going, always always going to happen. But at the same time, we're not quite there yet in James. So that's why it can be sometimes hard for us with a fully theologically developed Christian context to hear James appropriately. So I kind of throw that out as a caution as well. When we hear the emphasis that sounds Jewish or religious or lawful, we must view Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of James's emphasis. And we're not quite there yet, but there are a couple themes that run around, especially in the first chapter, where not only will we see things like, things we need to be about. But what we begin to see is that James has in his theology Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of these realities. So for instance, when James calls us to live in wisdom or to walk in wisdom or to ask for wisdom so that we might be complete, essentially what he is asking for in its greatest fulfillment is that we would know Christ. We would know Christ The wisdom from God, as Paul would explain. We're not there yet. But also, James would rehearse many of Jesus' teaching. I don't know if you saw that in in those graphics, how many uh, links there were to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5-7. through It is all over the place in James, almost as if James himself had it memorized and couldn't shake it and just reproduced it in kind of a New Testament word. It's, it's It's quite fascinating how many even in your cross references, if you have a, a reference Bible, I guarantee you you'll see over 20 references to Jesus's Sermon on the Mount just walking through James easily. it's a It's a huge reality, but again, don't forget Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he said some incredibly hard things. and the only way that Jesus's Sermon on the on the Mount makes sense to people like us is because Jesus himself, isn't merely the one encouraging you to get it done. He himself embodied the fulfillment of all that he commanded. So, for instance, when he said things like, unless your righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And yes, I think that was absolutely literal. And you're then meant to say, like, well, then who can get in? And Jesus says, I can't. I can get in, and I will get in, and I will get in for you. And then through my cross and in my resurrection, I will give you the benefits of of all that I have won. And so when we hear James, we also hear James repeating this reality of his own theology. Again, the the man who literally grew up with Jesus. Jesus would be the ultimate fulfillment of the reality that in the new covenant we have uh, presented here in front of us. When we hear an emphasis though in James that sounds particularly Christian, we must remember that James wanted his Jewish audience to embrace the full realities of the new covenant promise. In other words, he wanted all of his Jewish friends to understand the realities of Jesus' cross and resurrection in its absolute fullness, that their obedience would lead to a grand redemption, that their hearts would be soft that they wouldn't just follow Jesus or love Jesus because they were told to do so, but that they would actually love and grow, uh, and grow to love Jesus and their neighbor from a heart of flesh, from a soft heart that had been changed by the realities of the gospel. And so we hear, again, we're going to hear Jewish words in a Christian context. We have to be able to position this word carefully. And this is where we get to this reality, and I think it's absolutely beautiful that James would clarify for us a little hint of the gospel at work in his heart in the first three words of our text. James, a servant. James, a servant. Now, the reality is, he certainly was an apostle. We'll get there in a little bit. Well, actually, I'll, I'll articulate a little bit, a little bit here. He didn't start off an apostle. Uh, he was not one of the disciples. Again, he was Jesus's half brother. Paul in Galatians would actually hint that at some point James gained apostleship. We don't have clarity on exactly how, uh, but James, uh, Paul would actually call him um, one of the apostles eventually later on. And it certainly would have been easy for James to launch into his apostolic defense at this moment or uh, begin to lay into his people, if I can say it that way, or encourage his people using his apostolic office. Or maybe it would have been very comfortable or reasonable for James to actually uh, deploy a little bit of some uh, nepotism and say, hey, listen, I've kind of hung out with this dude for a very long time, this guy that you followed, and I'm pretty sure I have a a little corner of the market on his teaching and kind of what he meant and how he said it. And so as the brother of Jesus, I want to come to you and, and kind of tell you how it is. But he gives us a little bit of a heart of the realities at work, the gospel realities at work in his heart when he writes to his people and says, I'm just a servant. I'm just, I'm just a slave. I'm, I'm just somebody who owes everything to God and, and to my Savior Jesus Christ. which as you process James literally being the brother of Jesus, for James to hold that posture, something happened in in James's heart. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but I do think that this servantness, Oh, stink. I forgot to mention. We'll talk about this, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there at the end. So you can write that down for those of you who like to write things down. Pure religion is delighting in being a servant of Jesus. There you go, for you guys, note takers. I, I need to explain my my thoughts on, on sermon notes one day, but that's not for today. That's not for today. All right. If you wonder why I, why I struggle sometimes, like, you don't do well with sermon notes. There's a reason for that. We can talk about it. I'm glad that you do like sermon notes, though. All right. James announces he is a servant. I think there's a couple reasons why. One, I think there's a recognition of authority being given to him. Recognition of authority, a recognized authority that has been passed down. And certainly this is a humbling thing. Um, Any of you guys who have taken up the idea of leadership in any capacity... Um, and and without the the hunger for for power and, and wanting to abuse that, but anyone who's kind of stumbled into leadership knows how weighty this reality is. And when you, in one sense, have been given the reins of a of any sort of organization or people group, you understand that leading is very hard work, and it's 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 heavy. It's just heavy. And I certainly think that James recognizes this kind of. Uh, view of his own apostleship. He, he takes it and says, listen, I've been given this apostleship and, and I'm called to obey. This is, not, this is not my stuff I'm dealing with. God has given this to me. And because of God's authority at work in my life, I am a servant and I must obey and I must follow. I think James certainly does pick up on that. And even in our uh, first chapter, we're gonna get to this idea of uh, humility and exaltation. I think he understands the reality of what God has done in his heart. And certainly the idea of being a servant is deeply uh, apostolic language. Uh, Here are all the not all, here are just some of the similar languages that the apostles have used in relating their own apostleship. Uh, Paul says in Romans 1, I am a servant of Christ Jesus, almost as if James, or almost as if Paul stole it directly from James. Galatians 1.10, same thing. Philippians 1.1, Paul says, servant of Christ Jesus. Paul would eventually uh, team up with Titus, uh, excuse me, with Timothy and say, we are servants. And then even Peter would pick up uh, this same kind of language and say, though I am an apostle, I am a servant of all. So certainly the idea of apostleship carries this idea of we are servants because we've been given authority. We've been given this, and it's heavy, it's weighty, but it's not our own, and we're called to pass it along. And so we have to obey. We have to tell you these things. And we have to hold you to them. It's not not ours. We're We're just servants of the one you should be listening to. But also, James, because he's read his Bible and he's read his Old Testament specifically, this is also very similar language that the Jews would love to hear. For we actually have Moses and Joshua and all the prophets as being labeled very specifically as servants of the Lord. We have uh, Moses in Genesis 32. We have Joshua in Judges 2. David himself in Psalm 89. We have all of the prophets in Amos 3. And then you have all of Israel. Israel himself, Jesus himself, uh, being labeled as the servant of God. All of this points to language that is God, God hands down to the leaders of his people, to those who have. This office, and there's various offices, prophet, priest, and king tucked up in there, and then in New Testament times, the, the apostle, and it's all passed down authority, the servantness. And certainly James would pick that up and be able to convey that. But I think there's also something else at work. And again, I think we can see this because of some of the relationship that James had with his brother. He's also a servant because of gospel humility. He's a servant simply because the realities of the gospel was working itself out in James's personal life. I don't know if God has ever given you the, um, ever given you, as if he could change that now. I guess he could. But I don't know if God gave you the blessing of growing up with a brother. Uh, Those of you that don't know, Quentin's my, my brother, the guy who, by the way, you're doing announcements from here on out. That was actually fun. Announcements were fun. Thank you. I feel like whenever I do it, I'm just like, this is what we're doing, guys. Everyone's like, okay. Everyone's like, yeah, announcements. That was great. Quentin's my brother. We didn't always have this kind of relationship, truth be told. Uh, my grandmother literally to this day will still come up to both of us every time we get together. Uh, she lives in South Carolina. So we don't see her much. But when we do, she will always tell us she was convinced that she would be visiting at least one of us in jail for the rest of her life she and I don't I literally she, she tells us so much like we kind of thought oh that's you know cute grandma like literally I think she meant that um, we we fought often and I certainly remember remember the days that we fought uh, but I don't really remember what we fought about maybe it shows you our, our own maturity at the level of uh, adolescence that we were at but we certainly did fight and we fought a lot. And I don't know if we ever had the kind of um, relationship to to where we we told each other our our feelings of rivalry or our feelings of competition. It wasn't clear. It's not like we looked at each other in the eyes and says, I hate you and I'm going to win. None of us, we didn't say that. Um, But yet we constantly felt. The, the pressure, maybe, maybe even just the self-induced pressure. I don't think anyone was putting it on us. We were so close in age, everything was the same. Uh, we had very similar life trajectories and yet two remarkably different personalities and, and gifted uh, giftednesses. And so we were constantly going after the same things from two totally different angles. And it just, const- I mean, and again, the one thing I do remember is like, I wanted to wear your tie. And like, you would never let me wear your tie. And it was like, that's, that's one thing that I remember. And you're like, dude, I bought that with my own money. And I was like, but like we share. and We're supposed to be brothers, and Jesus would do this. And, and you'd be like, whatever, man. And then we'd just call mom, and she would settle the score. But growing up with a brother, in one sense, you can imagine it. It's just dudes being dudes. It's about winning, being tough, being bigger. There's competition just built in. I know this with my, my own two boys. Even at five and eight, this stuff goes on. But what would allow James, growing up with Jesus, what what would allow a brother who saw it all, who experienced it all, who maybe even would have uh, natural resentment because of how perfect the other brother was? how, How would James be able to joyfully submit his heart to his brother and say, I'm a servant, you're my king. What what would have to happen for a brother, just a family member, for that to be for that to be possible? And maybe even for us tonight, what would make it possible? What would have to happen for, for you and I? To consider ourselves true slaves of Jesus, and not again, I I think if this were Jesus being a perfect literal a literal perfect brother, you could imagine a scenario where where Jesus puts James in this kind of like uh like divine game of uncle, right, and just puts him in a headlock and says, "I'm the king," right? Call uncle, and that would like. And James would be like, Alright, Jesus, you got me. Like, okay. Alright, I'll be I'll be your servant. You'll be my king forever. Yay. Go, Jesus. But but what would it be if that divine game of uncle never happened? And James would literally, out of his own will and volition, raise his hand and say, I'll I'll do anything for my king. I'll I'll, I'll follow him anywhere. I serve only him. What, what would have to happen in your heart? Again, not for you to just be like, okay, I'll submit to you, King Jesus, you're sovereign over all, you control my life. But for you to actually raise your hand joyfully with delight and say, that's my king, I'll follow him anywhere. I'll do whatever he wants me to do. This is the kind of gospel humility that was at work in James's heart. The reality is something did happen to James, to that relationship, in that relationship. Sorry. Something did happen to actually trigger that response in James. He actually gets to it in chapter 1, verse 18. You're, you're welcome to look there real quick. We're looking a little bit ahead, but I do think it's helpful, again, for us to understand that James is deeply gospel centered and motivated in what he writes. We'll go to back back up to verse seventeen. He says, Every good gift and every perfect gift coming down from the Father of lights. And again he's you can imagine you can imagine James there literally thinking about the incarnation of his brother. The birth of his brother every good gift and every perfect gift from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. James is literally looking at his brother as the penultimate understanding of, of all of redemption and says in that perfect gift And in that word, we have, I have been graciously brought forth so that I might actually be one of the first fruits of his beautiful redemption in my big brother, Jesus. Something did happen. The gospel happened and James got to see it. And though James certainly, probably from our understanding of his own religiosity and his own piety, he, he probably lived a fairly decent life, but the reality is when he saw Jesus raised from the dead, something changed. And he said, I will serve him anywhere. I will happily and joyfully name him as my king. Of course, we know that James did see Jesus raised. Uh, Paul says us in 1 Corinthians 15, I, I gave to you what I first received. Right, That Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was raised from the dead and that he appeared to the apostles, that he appeared to James and to least of all to me. Beautiful. He includes James, the half-brother of Jesus, the one who wrote this letter, as one who literally saw the resurrected body of his incarnated brother. It's beautiful. See, the reality is Jesus had taken his brother's sins on himself. And Jesus had then breathed new spiritual life into the religiosity of his younger brother, James. And that is all James needed to know and all James needed to see and says, I'll serve him and I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. And eventually he would. He would give his life for his brother. But only because his brother gave his life for him. Jesus had caused him to be raised again, to be born again. In one moment, James went from being a slave of sin to a slave of Christ when he saw the resurrected Jesus. He moved from the domain of darkness into the light of Jesus's true grace. And my friend, this is not just James's reality. This is absolutely your reality as well. And James is writing to the church to help us understand the reality that not only is it a joy for James, the brother of Jesus, to be a servant of the king, but also for all of Jesus' brothers and sisters to be servants of the king, to be obedient, not just because we have to and because God's God and he's the older brother, but because of what he has done for us, we now say, I will follow him anywhere. I will do whatever he wants me to do. So what would cause you to joyfully submit your heart to being a servant of Christ? Because Jesus, in his greatness, came down and has served you infinitely. Like a servant, he has come, and actually like a criminal, he has come and he has taken upon your death. He has taken upon himself your sin. And like a perfect older brother would be, he took away your shame. He hid you from all the things that you would want to be embarrassed about yourself about. And he has given you his perfect righteousness and status at the cost of his own body. Yes, he is the perfect older brother in every imaginable way. And so it is out of that reality. That we can look to our older brother of whom Jesus says he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. We can look at him and say, that's my king. I'll serve him and I will follow him anywhere. Whatever he says, I will do. Whatever he says, I will hear. Whatever kind of prayer he wants me to pray, I'll pray. Whatever you command, I'll command. Wherever you send me, I will go. Whoever you call me to love, I will love. I will give out of the abundance of what I've been given. And so we continue to hear these themes running out of James, not because of some, some, some constraint of religiosity, but motivated purely because his brother had served him. See, pure religion says servanthood delights deeply in the gospel And moves to others in humility. Of course, other servants of God have actually taken up the same thing. One of my favorite passages, Psalm 84, the Lord God is a sun and shield. I would rather be a slave in the house of my God than to dwell in the riches of sin oh, how much better it is to be a slave of the Most High God than to dwell bountifully and richly in this world's system. Or as Paul would encourage us later on, have this same mind, which is yours in your brother Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count him uh, equality with God as something to be embraced or held onto, but made himself Nothing and took on the form of a servant for you. Have this same mind. Have your brother's mind amongst yourselves as he was given, as he gave it to you. So, my friend, we are going to read James and study James, and I promise you, you're going to find a lot that that does challenge you. That does that does really um, maybe even guilt you to some degree. And I don't want you merely to hear this as these are things you have to be doing simply because you just got to get them done. No, my friend, we are servants of our older brother. We uh, we, We are servants of a wonderfully kind and gracious brother. And so whatever he asks us to do, if he asks us to go a mile for the sake, wouldn't we go too? if we if we if we were asked and commanded to give a water a cup of water in the name of Jesus, why wouldn't we throw a party and a celebration for that for that person that that's what that's what we've been given. So whatever he says will do maybe maybe he has already said something to you. Maybe he has already communicated something that he wants you to do, where he wants you to go, someone he wants you to serve. My friend, you are a servant of your older brother who has served you immensely. Go obey. Go do it. And do it joyfully. Understanding the reality that pure religion is simply delighting in being a servant of Jesus. Let's pray. God, it's amazing to be even called your servants. To be in the house where Jesus is, to be in your presence, to be called your family. But Father, we have been given even greater than that. We've been given an inheritance that's imperishable and incorruptible, and it's waiting in heaven for us. And Father, we have everything that even Jesus himself owns and possesses right at our disposal, right at our fingertips. And even your presence has not been withheld from our lives. And so, Father, when, when we say we are servants, we don't mean that begrudgingly. We say that thankfully. We say that with all the amount of praise and rejoicing we can muster, we are servants of Jesus. And so out of that thankfulness, Father, we, we do say and confess to you, we'll go wherever you, wherever you want us to go. We will do whatever you want us to do. We are yours, even as you have given us all of yourself. Father, I pray that this kind of pure religion, where the gospel is at work deeply in our hearts, would not just hit our hearts, and not move to our hands, but that it would would hit our hands and it would move to our feet and it would be so active in our lives that people would actually, number one, know and understand more of the gospel that we preach, uh, but also, Father, that they would uh, be brought into the reality of the, the community that you've brought us into, into the church itself, that the mission would continue to go on through these folks. Father, continue to aid us and fuel us for the work that you've called us to do. Keep us humble servants. We pray these things through Christ. Amen.